You're listening to episode 392 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. Happy New Year. Yes, yes. This is 2022 already. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, and lots of drone news over the last couple of weeks. We hope everyone had a safe and prosperous holiday season. Um, we're all fighting COVID and stuff around in this air, neck of the woods. So we're, we wish everyone stay healthy, stay smart. But we got a lot of drone news to talk about. Drones for law enforcement, telehealth drones, a Russian attack drone, Russian drones that recharge from power lines, a DARPA program for underwater drones, finding lost hikers, a Christmas story, and remote ID court case could throw out the whole program. So I think we probably should get started. What do you think, Max? David, let's get started. Well, our first story comes from Drone DJ. Autonomous drones to respond to gunshots in new policing system. A U.S. company called ShotSpotter and Israeli-based Airbotics are teaming up for this law enforcement drone. It's an interesting concept. They each bring something to this, uh, this party. Um, what they want to do is they want to provide Israeli law enforcement agencies uh, with a system that basically creates situational awareness. And so ShotSpotter is a company that has a system that detects and locates gunfire. The idea is that would then uh, be used to alert the police and provide live drone video footage as well as still images of the scene. So how does this work? Well, um, ShotSpotter would identify the locale and the sound of the gunshots using a network of acoustic sensors. Bunch of microphones. Aerobotics would deploy the autonomous drone to the shot shooter, uh, shot spotter coordinates. Boy, is that a hard company to say. At the scene, the drone would then provide information to first responders, and a live feed would provide law enforcement um, what's going on en route. It's a simple kind of concept, and um, ShotSpotter has got this system. In fact, it turns out that there's some controversy surrounding ShotSpotter. They've actually been doing this for law enforcement for 25 years, detecting gunfire. In fact, this system's deployed to more than 120 cities, the United States, South Africa, the Caribbean, and ShotSpotter says that the detections are 97% accurate. But there's a study that came out looking at uh, Chicago's use of ShotSpotter. It is hard to say that without mangling it. And according to the study, 89% of the alerts issued by the company were not related to gun crime. 86% led to no report of any crime at all. And the city of Chicago, as a result, ended up with more than 40,000 dead-end shot spotter deployments. But shot spotter disputes that study. Yeah, the company stated, quote, ShotSpotter has recently been the subject of false and misleading statements and media coverage related to gunshot detection technology. 
We embrace the criticism and respect differences of opinion. Unfortunately, these are untrue and statements have been unfairly tested in response. So in other words, what they're saying is they're arguing the facts with the the reporting, saying that it's just typical reporting and it's unfair social media. So I, I guess... It's an interesting technology. If they've been doing it for 20 years, I wonder how the technology works without a drone. I guess there are acoustic sensors around the city. If anyone's been near a car near that backfires, I mean, how do you tell the difference between that and a gunfire? It's interesting technology. I'm just curious how sensitive and if there are that many false positives, I mean... What do you do? The concept is uh, is kind of intriguing to me. You're, you're taking this apparently old technology, uh, and you know we can or someone can dispute whether it works or not. But um, the technology that's been around for for decades, and then marry that with something newer with the drones that can then go off and respond to the the location where the gunfire was detected, and that would provide, uh, obviously, I think, law enforcement with some with some good intelligence and some good situational awareness. So, I'm sure uh, this is something that uh, is pretty attractive to law enforcement. So, let's talk about drone delivery, and this is from WinkNews.com. Special delivery drones bring the doctor to you. Medicine's next big thing. They don't mean they carry the doctor to you, but they'll mean they'll give you a visit by a drone. So basically, it's telehealth via drone. Yeah, from the headline, it sounds like bringing the doctor to you sounds like, what are these big drones that are going to carry doctors to uh, you know make house calls? And it's not that at all, obviously. It's, it's this telehealth drone. So this comes from the uh, mechanical engineering department at the University of Cincinnati. And they say they're building a telehealth drone. Now, this just doesn't just go to the front door. This is a drone that will have the ability to go inside people's homes. And so, obviously, that's a pretty technologically challenging task because it's not just simply getting the drone to the residence, but then operating the drone inside the house to bring this uh, telehealth capability right to the patient. So engineers are designing and testing a system with sensors that allows the drone to maneuver through a front door, into a patient's living room, carry a tablet or a smartphone. The patient then would connect with a doctor for a telehealth appointment. A medical kit on the drone would be used to measure and transmit health information. Researchers say they have a prototype that's been tested on people's homes. So nothing like a drone taking your blood pressure. Can you imagine it deploying a blood pressure cuff and taking your your vitals? Yeah, and I assume that's what the medical kit would would involve, uh, because obviously to to be effective in a telehealth situation, you need to be able to transmit vitals and things like that to the to the medical professional on the other side. I wonder if um, if this has a um, you know a screen where you see the face of the 
of of the doctor. I would assume you'd see the face of the doctor, either that or it, you'd be talking to the drone, and that would be kind of creepy. That would be kind of creepy. And I think that would elevate people's blood pressures yeah. also. Yeah. And I don't know, does the drone land, you know, on your coffee table or, uh, pre, you know, presumably it's not going to just sit there hovering in front of your face while uh, you conduct it. That would be distracting too. Well, yeah, I mean, but we're sort of making light about this. But remember, like late, early last year, we were talking about governments using drones to check on people's temperatures mm. in COVID. So, I mean, remotely, vital statistics can be determined, you know, by either by a smartwatch for all intents and purposes. So it, you wouldn't need a necessarily need a blood pressure cuff, but you could use hand them a smartwatch and the technology's there. I just think that you know if you're a slightly older senior citizen, it might be disturbing that this thing comes. What I want to know is who opens the door. <laughs> you mean the patient or the drone? Yeah, I mean, let's put this in Let's get through the first obstacle, which is not flying through the doorway. It's how do you get the door open? Does the drone ring the doorbell? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Many questions. It leaves a lot of questions. Well, our next story is from DefensePost.com. Russian Orion drones down copter. So drones shooting down Rotorcraft, kind of disturbing. This comes uh, from a video from the Russian Ministry of Defense. And this is the Orion Reconnaissance and Attack Drone. And uh, also what you see in the video is a hovering helicopter. It looks like uh, some kind of an unmanned helicopter that's hovering. And the Orion uh, drone fires something air-to-air, a missile, or I'm not sure... I'm not sure what. And the, the the hovering unmanned helicopter disintegrates in a very spectacular ball of fire. The drone uh, is to be fitted with electronics warfare suite to defend itself against missiles and to suppress any enemy systems in the interest of other units on the battlefield. Drones for air-to-air combat are is not uncommon. Usually, they're the primary targets for air, other aircraft. But um, to be able to defend yourself, I believe, is probably the next generation of drones will be able to provide air-to-air defense or, or support as loyal wingmen. They're going to carry air-to-air missiles. So this is kind of interesting. I mean, it is a first... It is a bit of a propaganda video. You know, it's got cool music and, you know, the, the the kind of normal video you see in these kind of propaganda things. The Orion, uh, it can fly, has a maximum speed of 200 kilometers per hour, which is about 124 miles per hour. can fly an altitude up to 80, or up to 8,000, rather, meters, uh, twenty roughly 26,000 feet the article has a well a typo or something. They've miscalculated the number of feet by a factor of 10, I guess. They got the decimal in the wrong place when they did the conversion. But it also says it can fly for 24 hours. Maximum takeoff weight, 1,100 roughly kilograms. Payload limit of 200 kilograms, 440 pounds. So that could carry some some pretty beefy ordnance, I guess. But we have the video. It's a, It's a Russian video. And uh, we'll have that in the show notes. You can watch the video right there. 
Well, the more sophisticated Russian news. Um, this is also from Defense Post. Russia developing drone capable of charging from power lines. Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. It's kind of like our perching birds, but charging from power lines. Apparently the drone clamps onto the power line, charges its battery. I, I don't know if it taps into the power line or if it's using induction to charge the battery. It's not really explained, but it does describe how the drone hangs inverted. So I guess it hangs underneath the... It's a bat drone. A bat drone. And then uh, also while it's charging, this I, this is not explained in any detail, but while it's charging, the camera remains operational and it uses that, uh, to, uh, the drone uses that to adjust its position. So I'm not sure what that's, what that's going there. But so I guess it hangs from the... <laughs> from the power line when it's charged up and it drops off, flies away. If it's practical and it works, what a great way to extend the, you know, the range because there are power lines all over the place. I do want to know how it sort of taps into the power lines. Mm. I have this sort of vision of it sort of surgically digging through the coating <laughs> on the wire. and Through the insulation, huh? Through the insulation. Little fangs that uh, get down to the copper. Yeah, or claws, One, you know. So we'll have to keep following up on that. If anybody else knows anything about that kind of technology, um, let us know. You can send us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com. So these new underwater drones made by DARPA take inspiration from manta rays. Now... If you like flying, your fish of choice has to be the manta ray because it's just a giant flying wing and they tend to fly out of the water. So manta rays are cool. So DARPA, of course, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, is developing drones that look like and could possibly fly like manta rays. And what they've done here is awarded phase two contracts to Northrop Grumman and uh, Martin Defense Group. Those are the two prime contractors. Each of them are developing full-scale demonstration vehicles. But this program, the Manta Ray program, uh, DARPA is looking to demonstrate innovative technologies. Uh, they want to allow payload-capable autonomous unmanned underwater vehicles, UUVs, that can operate on long-duration, long-range missions in the ocean. Um, and this, this program uh, is uh, just a couple of years old. It started in 2020. So the selected performers will work on subsystem testing, followed by fabrication and in-water demonstration of the full-scale integrated vehicles. So uh, there, And there is a video that goes with this. Um, manta rays are cool. You know, I'm going to date myself and say they've reinvented the flying sub from the 60s television show. Um, oh, shoot. It just drew went blank. What am I thinking of? Yeah, I don't know. What was the one with the sub? Um, 20, no, um, not 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh, with Captain Norm, Newman. Um, never mind. Cut all of this out. Captain Newman? Type in flying sub. It's not Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Yeah, that's it. That's right. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Yeah, had the flying sub, which was built on a man array. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, it dropped out at the front of the submarine. Wow. All right. 
See, I do know my science fiction. You do, sort of. (laughs) So, in our other story, Virginia Fire Department finds lost hikers via drones on Christmas. And this is from thehill.com. Two hikers were reported missing on Christmas by um, Sharp Top Mountain in the Blue Ridge Parkway in Virginia. Max, that's your that's your old stomping grounds, huh? Yeah, yeah, I know where that is. I've been uh, I've been by that. It's a it's a really popular hiking location, and apparently these two hikers went off near dusk, and they didn't have any lights or anything. And what happens after dusk? It gets dark, and it's and out in the Blue Ridge Mountains there at night when it gets dark, there's not a lot to see, and so they got lost, which is kind of uh, uh, to be expected. So the Bedford Fire Department was dispatched to find these two hikers. So they set up a command post. They launched a drone, which found the hikers, and then they sent in some rescuers to uh, escort the, the hikers out. But uh, a really effective use of the drone. Yeah, um, wondering wondering how they located them with the drone, whether they used infrared or, you know. Um, from NPS, one of the most popular trails in Virginia is a strenuous climb up the rocky summit of Sharp Top Mountain, 3,875 feet. The peak has attracted hikers for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The 1.5-mile trail extends 1,300 vertical feet through the forest and a sharp top mountain for a spectacular 360 view of the peaks of Otter and surrounding landscape. So that looks like a place I'm going to completely avoid. <laughs> well, at least don't go at night. Or, or, <laughs> or if you do, bring a flashlight. <laughs> or a cell phone. You know, even a cell phone has a light. In, and yeah, I don't know. Well, ours is not to wonder why. Ours is just to report the news. This next one, I think, is a big deal, David. Do you? I, I, I This was sort of buried. Um, this is the D.C. Circuit may blow up remote identification rule for drones. Um, this is the Lawfare blog. Oral arguments were heard in the race day quads versus FAA case. The FAA's remote identification, or RID, rule is being challenged. Well, Max, I guess, you know, we really haven't done any in-depth legal challenges in a while. Seems to be for a long time that's all we were doing. Well, they're back now. And this is, like I said, this is a big deal because uh, remote ID is a prerequisite for operations over people, for BV loss and even UTM. It, it, you know, having remote ID of drones is, is sort of a cornerstone technology. So, if the rule fails in this court case, then this would be a huge, huge setback for drone operations, especially commercial. So, what's the RID rule? It applies to small drones from 0.55 to 55 pounds. The drone would broadcast a digital license plate over Wi-Fi and or Bluetooth, a unique identifier, i.e. serial number, its position, altitude, velocity, control station coordinates, as well as message elements. So you're basically sending out a ton of data 
about who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. And this, again, would be over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, so it's not encrypted or anything, so the data that's broadcast would be available to, well, not only the FAA and security agencies, law enforcement, other government officials, but the general public as well. In other words, anybody would be able to pick up on the data being transmitted. Now, there's there's two ways that, under the rule, there's two ways that this remote identification can be implemented. It can either be hardwired into the drone, and that's called in the rule standard remote ID, or it can be attached externally uh, through a module, and that's called broadcast mode remote ID, RID, or BMID. When it becomes effective, if you don't have either of those, in other words, if your drone has no remote identification, then you're limited as to where you can fly it. You can only fly it in FAA-recognized identification areas, and this will sound familiar, under the purview of community-based organizations and also educational institutions. So, Manufacturers have until September 2022 to implement remote ID, and drone operators have until September 2023 to comply with the rule. All right, now the lawsuit. You know, with that background, but but you know that was a good recap because we haven't really touched about this in a long time. So I, I it was a good refresher, Max, for all of us. And 2022 is here, so. September isn't that far away. I can't believe we're talking about September already. But that being said, so Race Day Quads is a online retailer that supports first person view or FPV drone racing customers. Drone racing doesn't work in an FAA recognized identification area. There's problem number one. RDQ's co-founder and CEO, Tyler Brannon, an active-duty U.S. Air Force F-15E pilot, said he seeks to protect the constitutional rights of U.S. citizens to be free from unreasonable searches from the government when they are flying in their own backyards. Okay, this has got one of those twinges of nationalist stuff that's going on here in the States. So the legal team that's uh, supporting RDQ, Race Day Quads, uh, in- includes some notables, including uh, Mr. Ruprecht, wh- whom uh, we've talked about, but not for a while. One of the preeminent you know, legal lawyers when, when it comes to drones and unmanned aircraft. But RDQ alleges that the rule is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Why? Because it allows warrantless tracking in a backyard. They also say that the FAA arbitrarily and capriciously relied on undisclosed ex parte communications during the rulemaking process, which basically means, as I understand it, that not all the stakeholders were consulted. Uh, They also alleged that the final rule was not a logical outgrowth from the NPRM. Also, that the FAA failed to comply with a legal mandate to consult with uh, the RTCA, the Radio Technical Commission for Aeronautics, as well as the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They also say that the FAA didn't address significant public comments as required by the Administrative Procedure Act. So they have a lot of uh, (laughs) allegations that 
might hold some weight. Aren't unreasonable. I mean, the government contends that merely requiring RID technology on board a drone does not equate it to a unreasonable search. Planes flying in public view does not give rise to a reasonable expectation of privacy. You know, that makes sense. You're out in public, so... Even if the old rule did violate the Fourth Amendment, special needs exceptions would legally justify it. The doctrine recognizes that law enforcement's special needs justify a search predicated on less than the Fourth Amendment probable cause requirement when the objective serves non-law enforcement ends. So in other words, folks, if they happen to see something and they're doing a search and they're seeing something, they can use that against you. So AUVSI, the Association for Unmanned Vehicle Systems International, supports the FAA's position. But uh, Ruprecht says that people have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their backyard. With uh, our ID here, with remote ID here, law enforcement without any warrant, and it's unlimited, can track an individual in his backyard. So we'll see. Now, this is going to play out this year, according to the article. that They're expecting a ruling sometime in early 2022. So what happens if RDQ wins? Well, then presumably the rule would be vacated, and we'd have to start all over again to create a remote ID rule, which sets us back at least a year, if not two. Yeah, uh, more like five, realistically. Um, This is good. You're right, Max. This seems to be a a challenge to what we thought was a fairly normal, it was going to be a standard flow. There wasn't much objection to this when it was proposed as in in the notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, But clearly there has been an upswell of anti-RID. And I wish this had come out earlier. We're talking about uh, manufacturers implementing this year. Uh, another question I have is if the court rules that the FAA does have some problems here, if there's some violations or if, or something, can the FAA negotiate to reach a settlement? Or does the FAA have to step back and say, no, if we're going to change anything about the rule— then we have to go back through the entire process again. Well, knowing the FAA, it'll be the latter. If that's the case, then even if there's some kind of a negotiated agreement or settlement that makes both sides happy, I guess that doesn't mean that things can proceed on schedule if there's any changes to the you know that would be made to the rule. So right, we'll yeah. have to watch for that. And think about this. Like you said, Max, the manufacturers are already installing this stuff, this software or hardware into their drones because they're required to do so by September of this year. Um, You know, that's one of those things, okay, do I do it? Do I not do it? You know, this is one of those terrible, from a manufacturing standpoint, is kind of awkward because you're sort of stuck, you know. Do you go ahead and install all of it and then you don't need it? Or do you hold off and wait? So I guess we're going to be talking about this at least for the next couple of months. I would think so. And again, I think it's really kind of a critical issue. So we have that to look forward to. 
Ah, uh, yes. And we so Max, I guess we should really any predictions mm. for 2022? Oh my gosh. No. No. Well, you mean just beyond this one issue? Um, yeah, bro- well, this is an easy one. Broadly, I think we'll see more collaborations. I think we'll see more consolidation uh, of the industry. Um, I'm I'm curious to see, uh, with respect to urban air mobility, you know, what kind of consolidation we see, or what kinds of, or which companies maybe drop out because you know there are, there are a lot of companies proposing solutions now and uh, I, I don't think it's practical that they'll all survive so you know we'll see who comes out on top so do you think 5g will affect the the uh, urban air mobility and oh. or drones no i guess it shouldn't and, and david's referring to an issue with the with the airlines and the the, the contention that uh, the 5g frequency range used by some of the carriers at&t and verizon actually um, could interfere with radar altimeters on the aircraft. So, yeah, I don't think that affects drones, I don't think. Well, we'll see. Yeah, we will. All right. Well, we want to thank you for listening to the UAV Digest. As always, this has been Episode 392. You can find us at the UAVdigest.com. You can also find us on our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com. And, of course, you can find Max and I on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and any other social media. Um, And, of course, on Mondays on the Airplane Geeks podcast. So with that, I guess we're going to say good night. And again, Happy New Year. We're looking forward to covering all of your drone news for 2022. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 